Hi, I'm Frederick County Executive Jan Gardner, and you're listening to Mako's newest local news platform, the Conduit Street Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Today on the podcast, we will talk about a handful of new laws that have gone into effect on October 1st here in Maryland, not necessarily county-specific, but interesting nonetheless. Then we'll get into a new law in another state, California, a net neutrality law that could have impacts on other states, including Maryland. And we will discuss what happens when Congress fails to act, how states have taken issues into their own hands. Michael, how are you today? Doing fine. How about you? Doing very well. Thank you. Let's jump right in, Michael. We had a bunch of new laws go into effect here in Maryland on October 1st. Now, what's the significance of October 1st? Is that just an arbitrary date set by the General Assembly? Yeah, it's a a fairly arbitrary. It's the most common effective date for legislation passed by the General Assembly. So you put in a bill, you want to change a law or something like that, and uh, typically, unless there's a reason to do another date, the standard default uh, effective date is October 1 uh, subsequent. And that, it, it makes some sense for, for some reasons. Uh, um, it gives time for if you have a state agency that needs to implement things or do regulations or whatever, that's a few months time for them to get their, their ship in order. Um, it also gives time for citizens if they wanted to do a, uh, you know, in theory, citizens can put something that's passed by the General Assembly on the ballot through a petition process. And nominally, you want the, the, the citizens to have time to go through that process and and uh, have something be pending that process. So the two yeah. most common dates we see are October 1st and July 1st. What's the yeah. significance of July 1st? Usually July 1 is for something that has a fiscal effect. Right. And if you're making a change to tax policy or spending or revenue issues, you ordinarily would want that to sync up with the state's fiscal year. So the state's fiscal year starts on July 1, and you usually would say tax changes and things like that would start with a new fiscal year. Makes sense. So the first law we'll talk about here has to do with state employees and parental leave. This law says that 60 days of paid parental leave must be allowed following the birth or adoption of a child under the age of six. So we've seen the state legislature has an appetite for sort of personnel policies. And I think some of this comes from angst about people who are full-time employees or close to full-time employees but find themselves unable to take a sick day without losing compensation. Um, they can't take a, you know, a vacation without losing compensation, all, all these sorts of things. So we've seen the legislature get active both in guiding the policy of the state government itself, but also in guiding the policies of private employers in the state of Maryland. So we've been we've become a relatively hands-on state on that front, and uh, this is you know one more element of that. Yeah, we've seen a handful of other states uh, as well adopt parental leave policies and paid sick leave policies. So Maryland's following suit there, but certainly an appetite for this, as you mentioned. The sick and safe leave law was a huge debate a couple of years ago. That's now in effect. So some, something similar here. Yeah, and that the, that the sick and safe leave bill had the strange effective date because that bill was passed in the 2017 session. Uh, the governor vetoed the bill, and then it stood 
you know, sitting as a vetoed bill until the legislature came back in early 2018 and overrode the governor's veto. Then the bill became effective immediately as of the override. So it's an unusual process. Uh, it, it was we, we we recall there was a big debate about implementation right. and some some legislation introduced that maybe we should delay things for a little while and let the business community sort it out. There, I mean, I think the consensus in town was everybody knew this was coming, so you had your forewarning already. But uh, that became its own implementation, you know, consternation. Yeah. So the Senate acted on that uh, bill to delay. The House did not. So. Interesting stuff there, but again, Maryland certainly has the appetite here, and that law became effective October 1st. The next law, Michael, we'll talk about, this is a big topic around the country, electronic cigarettes. And as of October 1st, distribution of electronic cigarettes to minors has new penalties, and it is certainly prohibited. So now it's a criminal misdemeanor to distribute electronic cigarettes to minors. And Michael, again, this is a the big issue nationally. And, you know, local versus state regulations read tobacco or nicotine is interesting as well. Yeah, I think this this whole thing is, is interesting. But we, we, did a, we did a whole couple of segments of this podcast talking about new technology driving policy. And I think, you know, vaping and that technology is a relatively new thing as well. So states and to some degree local governments are the players for overseeing and regulating tobacco, who can access it, who can sell it. You know what's the legal age and all those sorts of things are, are essentially in state law. So this is interesting. What do you do with other substances that are not exactly tobacco, but they have some of the same hallmarks? They're using nicotine. The you know the the smoking device is similar to a cigarette in some regards. It's 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 sort of an interesting question. How far would you would you want to apply? current tobacco limits and regulations onto these non-smoking products, you know, the the inhalations and so forth, electronic cigarettes. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen, you know, the feds rating certain, you know, manufacturers and saying that they're, they're purposely marketing these to kids and it's a big problem. You know, there, I think there are different studies about whether or not these devices have the same effects as smoking cigarettes. Right. That's yet to be determined. But obviously, these have been around for a little while, and now the, the government's starting to catch up with regulations. Right. So, so what this basically represents is we already have – we already have laws like this about the age of use of tobacco products and it's illegal to distribute to, market to, and sell to people who are underage. So the idea here is e-cigarettes, same sort of thing. They have some of the same addictive properties and we ought to treat them the same thing under state laws. That's the philosophy that Maryland has embraced here. And I have to imagine there are state legislatures in lots of places having this same debate. So the next law here, Michael, let's talk about the Open Meetings Act, closed meetings for cybersecurity. So we do have the Open Meetings Act. Unfortunately, it was written in a time where we didn't have cybersecurity threats. You know, we had physical security threats. But this law essentially is just updating the Open Meetings Act to deal with cybersecurity, right? So, I mean, open meetings, everybody's familiar with sunshine laws in general. And we've talked about the Public Information Act. That's sort of our freedom of information where a document, you can go get a copy of it from the government. There's also a, a, you know, a comparable rule for meetings of your county commissioners or other boards and commissions or other things that are created under state law. If it's a public body, people should be allowed to attend. They should be able to know when the meeting's going to happen. And in general, these laws all skew in the favor of openness. You want transparency in public deliberations. That said, every every state has laws like this, recognizes there are some things that you need to discuss 
in closed session. And in Maryland, there's a list of things where you can close session. We're talking about discipline of an employee. Mm -hmm. That's not the appropriate sort of thing to be aired out in public if there's an open question whether the person deserves discipline. And I mean, a body like the, you know, last night I was before the Dorchester County Council. That's five elected officials who collectively manage and oversee the government. They, they discuss all those sorts of things. They had a closed session to talk about personnel matters and so forth right before, um, before I was on their agenda. So right. that's, that's how things are supposed to work. And I think Sunshine advocates believe that that makes sense. So there's a list of things. And you're, if you're in a private negotiation or you're dealing with personnel matters or some other things on that list, you go into closed session and then you report back in public these are the things we talked about and if we made certain decisions these are what they are what this bill does is recognizes that if we're talking about a a cyber threat that's affecting the county government or state agency or whatnot maybe you don't want to talk about the details of our current cyber weaknesses in open session where everybody can hear and take notes yeah that makes sense i mean especially counties have become targets of these threats on a regular occurrence unfortunately you know we are regularly attacked by individuals criminal organizations foreign governments, and we have sensitive data that they're seeking to control, that, you know, we have vital infrastructure that they could access. So certainly makes sense to me that you would have a closed session when you're discussing a sensitive topic like this one. Yeah, it's it's almost, oddly enough, it's almost like IT, information technology and your computer systems are becoming a topic kind of like personnel, where it doesn't make sense to have an open airing of the details of what our current weaknesses and problems are, because you're just you're just giving a how-to manual for somebody who might have bad intentions. That's right. So this, is, this one was needed, and uh, it's good to see this one in effect. The next one we'll talk about here, Michael, has to do with consumer protection, and this has to do with caller ID spoofing. Spoofing is often used as part of an attempt to trick someone into giving away their personal information so it can be used against them to create fraud or be sold illegally. These spoofers often pose as banks, credit card companies, even state or local governments, and they often prey on the elderly. So what would happen here is, you know, someone would look at their caller ID and they would see Anne Arundel County government is calling. They'd answer, it's not Anne Arundel County government, right? But 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 then it's somebody who who's using some device mm-hmm. to pretend to you know, to tell your phone that this is coming from Anne Arundel County government, and they say, "I need information about this tax bill. Can you please give me your credit card? Right. Give me your bank account information so we can settle this problem." Um, just just the the technology of spoofing who the caller is, so that your smartphone or your phone with caller ID, you know, picks up picks up some text that that describes who the caller is if you can if you can manage to spoof that you can fool some people you know in ways that phishing emails and so forth have, have done so it's 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 a real problem it's a real problem and hopefully this law will stop it it certainly aims to do that and yeah, it's one of those tricky issues where this is a state legislature trying to resolve an issue that almost certainly has a boundary beyond the, the scope of the state right sure I mean, and beyond the is, scope of the country right i mean this caller could be coming from another country or another part of the world but you know, they're using a device to make you know, to make the call look like it's uh, you know right next door, and that's part of the spoofing effort. So you you can make this illegal in Maryland. We'll see to what extent this resolves the problem. All right. So the next one here, Michael, this does have to do with local governments, and we're going to talk about splash pads. I, you know, to be honest with you, when I first saw this bill last year, I had no idea yeah, what a splash I, pad I didn't was. Either, yeah. Right. 
So essentially, a splash pad is an outdoor play area with sprinklers or fountains, nozzles, anything that sprays water. It's not a pool because water is not accumulating. Right. But the thing is, it's 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 not a, really a pool, but the pool regulations are really all we've had to go on until this sort of thing started popping up in you know place by place. So this is maybe another case of innovation in, in this case, maybe not technology, but in recreation, innovation requiring public policy to catch up. And so if splash pads are showing up, are regulations for pools good enough to, to cover the, you know this new sort of thing? Right. So this, uh, this law allows local governments to regulate these splash pads. As you said, under current law, you know, splash pads must meet the same requirements as pools. But uh, there are other sanitary concerns like having restrooms within a certain distance of a splash pad that aren't currently covered. So really, this is a health and safety issue. Again, this is catching up to uh, not a technology, but as you said, a recreational activity that maybe didn't exist a few years ago. And this is just ensuring that we can protect the health and safety of our our citizens right. in counties. So, and I mean, you know, it's, it's a sanitation issue, but on, on a certain level, you think about public health concerns with standing water and, you know, being a breeding ground for mosquitoes and all the different mosquito-borne illnesses that we have to be worried about. Um, this is the kind of thing where, okay, pools generally have filters and cleaning systems. These other water Water recreation places may not have those sorts of things. So if a local government sees this popping up, you can step in and say, these are the standards we need to hold you to, you know, on looking toward public health. And that's, that's the fundamental role of local governments. And that's the state legislature did the right thing here. Rather than saying the state law is A, B, and C, they said, local governments, you make the call. What do you need? Yeah, one-size-fits-all approach may not work here. So I agree that the legislature did the right thing there in saying, local governments, take care of this issue on the local level. That's where it should be taken care of. All right, Michael, the last local change that we will talk about, the new law here in Maryland, is this red flag law. Uh, This is a controversial issue. This is not a county-specific issue, but red flag laws are essentially extreme risk protective orders. So this would allow a family member, law enforcement, or others to seek a court order to temporarily prohibit somebody's access to a gun when they show signs that they're a danger to themselves or others. And we've seen, you know, in Maryland, we've seen mass shootings and across the country. This is obviously in response to keeping guns away from people who may pose a threat to themselves or others. Right. So, I mean, you know, sadly, our own state, you know, we've we've been the, the source of now, you know, three hashtag events just right. this year. Right. Uh, so you know, this is this was very much on the minds of of legislators, and and in Maryland, I mean, we're kind of oddly situated with regards to gun laws. That we are one of the states that has been relatively aggressive on the purchasing and the background checks and the the type of you know, types of guns being outlawed and magazines being outlawed and so forth. Um, but I mean, it, it's it's a natural reaction. I think after after some of these incidents, we all tend to look back and say, what happened? What went wrong? And in many cases, I think a lot of a lot of people look back and say, "Well, this guy, why why didn't we catch this right. guy? There were there were there were signs that maybe this was a troubled kid who shouldn't be in a house where there's a loaded gun. Um, even if even if in general people have rights that you know have guns, maybe we should do something about that when we see the writing on the wall. So we're not the only state who's tread into this 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 area of saying if there are red flags that pop up." Uh, you can go through a process, you know, get a review, and then potentially try 
and you know remove the troubled person from the weapon that might cause big trouble. And that's been an issue in the past for law enforcement or family members, right? Because they can't just go take a gun away. This would allow a judge to determine whether or not you know there should be some sort of protective order that would temporarily remove the weapon from that person. And and this is a sort of thing that may very well up well end up in court that you're challenging constitutional principles here and a lot of these subjects end up getting contested into the federal courts so it's possible this takes some time to sort out whether you know whether whether this is really going to be the law of the land in maryland and other places but um this is one of the things that maryland tried to do partially in response and partially in anticipation of what could be the next threat and talking about issues ending up in the federal courts after the break we're going to talk about a new law in California that almost certainly will end up in the federal courts. All that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we have talked about new laws going into effect here in Maryland. Now let's shift gears to a new law that was passed in California, has not yet taken effect, but this has to do with net neutrality. And this is this is a ripe topic that we've seen a lot in the headlines, mostly at the federal level. Uh, this California is the first state to act on this front, and you know we we closed with an illusion that that this this subject may be heading for litigation. This is a likely candidate for that. So you know let's let's talk about California's net neutrality law. What are we getting into with net neutrality? So first of all, net neutrality is just the principle that all traffic on the internet should be treated equally. So if you're checking Facebook, if you're posting pictures to Instagram, if you're streaming videos from Netflix or Amazon. Amazon, it all should be treated the same. And it also means that big tech companies, you know, you know, AT&T's of the world, Time Warner, they can't favor their own content over a competitor. And that is really a big issue here, controlling content, restricting content. So, so what we're, we're talking about here are sort of the, the two players. I mean, at, at the basic level, when you think about stuff on the internet, the, the two giant groups of players are service providers and that might be your cable company or it might be um the, the the fiber optic network or it might be your wireless company but whoever it is that's that's given you a connection to the internet um that, so that's your service provider but then there's content providers so you mentioned you know websites and companies like Facebook and Amazon and Hulu and and Netflix and so forth they are content providers mm-hmm. so on on a certain level i mean you know it's easy to think of these groups in two separate baskets that you know that um uh, that that Comcast and Verizon and companies like that are the service providers. They're the connections, and then they bring you the content. Right. And net neutrality is nominally about how do service providers manage the content, and they need to treat all content equally. That's the neutrality concept. What's made that that sim- simple a breakdown fall apart is that the lines are starting to blur between who's a who's a service provider and who's a content provider as some of these big companies are going out and merging and acquiring and spinning off new branches we're starting to see more and more companies get into both businesses so if you're concerned about a service provider playing favorites and either 
working out a deal with one content provider and saying, we're going to make your stuff fast and your opponents go slow. Or if it's a service provider who has now their own branch of their company that's providing content, they can say, we'll make our in-house content go fast and other stuff go slow. If that's what you're worried about, then net neutrality laws are the sort of thing designed to keep that from happening. So California passed this law. It's not gone into effect. And that's probably because they know this is going to end up in the courts. So they set the law to go into effect next year. And basically, they're telling the FCC that they, as a state, have the right to create their own net neutrality laws. And they don't want to see what you just described happening. So the, the, the funny thing here is when when the FCC is the Federal Communications Commission, this is the part of the federal government that oversees telecom generally. Mm-hmm. So this is a, an appointed body that has, you know, by design, they have a partisan split, but that sort of tie is broken by the incumbent administration. So when we switched from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, the leadership of the FCC changed and their attitude about this F- this uh, net neutrality matter changed as well. Right. So the FCC recently said the feds are backing off on this principle. We're going to let the service companies do what they want to do in this open market. We don't need to be telling them what they can and can't do adherence to this idea of net neutrality were you know basically marching in the streets there are a lot of people who've taken this really really seriously and california is the first state to step up and say we know the federal government has been in charge of this issue and we know we even know that the order from the fcc says the states have no room to act here but we're moving in anyway, and here's our new law. Here's what we think the rules of the road are going to be for anyone providing service in the state of California. We've also seen a lot of net neutrality supporters, including the content providers that you mentioned earlier, filing suit and and wanting to preserve net neutrality. We've also seen a number of states' attorneys general uh, sue the federal government. Suing the feds right. over the FCC's action, saying you shouldn't have backed off. Right. So more than two dozen states, including California, New York, Connecticut, and Maryland are considering or have already filed suit against the Fed saying the FCC has no right to do this. We control everything within our own borders here in terms of net neutrality. Are, do, are territories allowed to be in this? I don't Guam, know. I don't know uh, if Guam is in, in on this. I we have, have to, to take a look at Guam, right. but uh, I'm sure they, uh, they're concerned. They, I'm sure. They're very concerned. Very concerned. So the big question here, Michael, is will Congress take action? And while the FCC already voted to repeal the regulations, you know, some of the proponents are trying to keep them alive. And we saw in May the Senate passed a Congressional Review Act, which is a way to overrule the FCC. But uh, the House has not acted on that bill. So, I mean, the, I mean, the short version is if, if you say the question, the question is, will Congress take action? The smart money is no. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just what we've seen. This is not a short term issue in, in the U.S. Congress. This is the last you know decade or so we have seen partisan splits on almost every issue of substance turn into congressional inability to find consensus. So the likelihood of there being a big, meaningful, substantive reform on what internet service ought to look like and what the rules of the road should be like, to find a 60-person majority in the U.S. Senate that really lays this down seems awfully unlikely. They, you know, they, they can pass things that don't, account, that, that don't accomplish very much, but this would be a big deal. This would take a lot of work, and 
the likelihood is uh, Congress isn't going to be able to do something. Yeah, and even if they did, the the president would have to sign the law, Hmm, and and it's unlikely that he would because the chairman of the FCC is his appointee, Chairman Pai. You know, it's happened before, but it's very unlikely here that's going to happen. Right, so so the smart money here is that the feds are done, the the, the agency has ruled, and the Congress won't have the consensus required to overrule that or refine it. So the FCC gets their way – and now we'll see states intervene and say, yeah, so, so California's first. They've passed this law. It's not, not effective till sometime next year. So that might be by design, recognizing that there's going to be some push and pull here. Right. Uh, but as a, as a practical matter, this looks like the next shot fired on a, on a tricky and interesting policy issue. Yeah, and right after that law passed, the feds immediately filed suit against California. So obviously California anticipated that happening. Federal government saying, look, you can't subvert the federal government's deregulatory approach here to the internet. This is interstate commerce. We occupy this field. So right. it's going to be an interesting issue moving forward. Right. And, and I mean, the Constitution has a specific clause about interstate commerce and saying that's the province of the Congress. And when the Congress passes laws that defer some decision making authority to a, to a federal agency, that is an act of the federal government. So I mean, the, the, the federal government has a pretty strong hand to play here. So it's, it's not clear whether California expects to win or whether they're just trying to move the political needle here. Either one is possible, I think. So here in Maryland, we did see a bill uh, introduced in the 2018 session to protect user privacy and preserve net neutrality. And that bill would have banned companies who refused to comply with net neutrality from doing business with the state. That bill did not pass. Right. So, I mean, so maybe now a year later with a state like California has sort of broken the ice, they've passed their own bill and they're ready to go to court to defend it. Um, I mean, this is a topic that polls pretty well. Right. If you If you ask citizens and you give them a paragraph describing this subject and you say, do you support this idea of net neutrality? I don't know what the numbers are, but I bet you it's better than 50%. Pretty high. You know, 60, 70, 75 probably agree. Gee, that sounds like fair play is the way to go. Um, so I don't know what happens in states like Maryland where there might be a philosophical inclination to follow California and do the same thing. And if this means fighting against the feds, so be it, we'll do it. Um, I don't think you can rule that out. There, I mean, the likelihood of a bill getting introduced either by the same sponsor or by more sponsors this coming year, I think is pretty high. I think we'll see this debate in Maryland. It'll be a more visible one than in eighteen. And Michael, in general, I mean, this this law that was passed in California is just another example of the line between, you know, federal law and state law becoming more and more blurred. Right. And we've seen California essentially <laughs> set national policy before, right? Right. right. I mean, the, the relatively obvious parallel here, and I'm sure policymakers in California are thinking about this, is with vehicle emissions, that years ago, the federal government, you know, had its own policy debate about what should be the standards. I think we call them the CAFE standards for vehicle emissions. If you're building cars and selling cars in this com- in this country, we have laws regarding they have to have a certain level of gas mileage, right? right? And 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 so it's for you know for both for emissions and for gas mileage. So basically, California took the lead on a couple of fronts, but have basically said. 
we want to have more aggressive standards than the federal government is willing to go with. And I mean, California, when you talk about the internet stuff, I mean, California is uniquely positioned because Silicon Valley is the home of an awful lot of technology companies on both sides of this provider and content uh, outfit. Right. California is also the largest state by population. They're like a sixth of our economy and so forth. I mean, they're a gigantic state that has the ability. If you, if you set a rule saying you can't play ball in California unless you do what we want, most companies will be kowtowed into saying, well, we're going to follow California's rules. Right. And, and that's basically what happened with cars is California took the lead and said, if you want to – if you know Ford Motor Company, if you want to build and sell cars in California, they have to meet our standards. They're higher than the federal standards. So, and- so Ford had <laughs> two options, right? They either could make two different types of vehicles, one for California and one for outside of the state of California, or they just make all their vehicles – uh, you know, work in California and comply with their regulations. Right. And then over time, over time, it became relatively clear as a business decision. You just make California ready cars. I think. I mean, there was some there was some time where there were two different sure. you know, breeds of cars coming off the lines in in you know in Pontiac, Michigan, right? But uh, but as as a practical matter, over time, this turned into okay. California set the standards and. Other states started signing up, and it wasn't all that long ago that that Maryland was one of many states who signed on with a California set emission standards. So, you know, for 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 some of those issues with what a cars look like, California took the lead and ended up basically forcing the hand of, you know, the American economic policy. So they've got a track record here. Maybe this is the next test for that kind of thing. So this is. A big state, California, taking the lead on an issue where the federal government has taken action and the state wants to contradict it. Um, so that is an interesting and aggressive challenge. Yeah, but we've also seen, you know, different here, we've also seen a number of states taking action due to federal inaction, right? So right. Congress has not acted and states have begun to fill the void. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we mentioned this a, a, a few moments ago, um, but the we have seen inaction from the U.S. Congress for several terms now, and I don't I don't mean this to you know be a pot shot, but it's just as a practical matter. There's an awful lot of relatively big issues that have dissolved into just intractable stalemates, partisan politics, right? And so um, you know because I mean in part because you have the filibuster rule in the U.S. Senate on most things other than specific nominations mm-hmm. on most things it takes. 60 votes to get something passed and it's relatively difficult to get 60 senators to agree whether the sun's going to rise in the east much right. less whether we should have some big broad reform of some important area of public policy right so you've got lots of areas where uh, congress just hasn't been able to reach a conclusion the, the senate won't agree with the house or vice versa or the two sides of the senate can't agree or the same in the house or the president disagrees with both chambers even this term where we've got the same party in control of all three spokes of that triangle, uh, we still haven't seen – You know, it's been really difficult for them. They couldn't pass the health care reforms many of them had in mind. They had talked about a big commitment to infrastructure. That never materialized. Uh, it took lots of pushes and pulls to do tax reform and that ended up being a lot of bidding against themselves to do tax reform. So you know, lots and lots of things are on the we can't do this shelf and states 
have been stepping in to fill that void here and there. And Michael, I think it's interesting. I mean, traditionally, when we think about, you know, one party being in control of the Congress and the executive branch, you think, okay, they're going to get everything they want. Boom, boom. But now I guess we have to start thinking it's in a different way because we've started to see parties fracture from the inside, right? There are different splits within these parties. So things have changed and it's really hard to get the 60 votes, regardless if, if the Democrats or the Republicans are in control. Sure. And like, that's what we saw on federal tax reform within the Republican Party, which was, you know, which was a party that ideologically is in favor of reducing taxes, at least in selective ways. Right. But it turned out you had a faction within the Republican Party who considered themselves deficit hawks and didn't want to see, well, if we're going to be cutting taxes and reducing revenues, that has the tendency to increase the federal deficit. And, you know, there were some some Republican senators and congressmen saying, I'm not willing to vote for a package that messes up our, our national debt by more than, you know, X dollars. Right. You know, score this thing over 10 years and a trillion and a half is as far as I'm willing to go. And Okay, so that that became the party, you know, internally having some people saying let's cut all the taxes and other folks saying let's watch for the deficit right. and that that became basically the you know the the boundaries for the negotiation. Yeah, we're seeing that more and more so tough to get those votes so states have started to act. We've talked about states acting on internet privacy and net neutrality. Michael, we've also seen this in the area of paid leave. So we talked about paid family leave earlier for state employees here in Maryland. We talked about sick and safe leave. That law has been passed and it's on the books. But with the paid parental leave, Maryland joins 10 states in D.C. uh, that require paid parental leave, paid sick leave. And and these laws are on the books. And again, this is because the federal government has not acted and states have said, you know what, we're going to do it ourselves because we think it's the right thing to do. Our constituents think it's the right thing to do. So due to this inaction, we're going to make our own laws. And and, in substantial part, I mean, this is I mean, most of these topics have been introduced and debated at the federal level to become United States policy as opposed to just this state and that state and that state, but not other ones. Um, So so labor laws historically have really been the province of the federal government. Uh, But this is I mean, this is candidly in, in most cases, it's relatively blue states where their federal representatives would be would be willing to support federal laws but because that can't pass they said well we'll go ahead we'll do it in Oregon or Massachusetts or California or Maryland and so we're seeing you know we're seeing blue states move ahead with labor things to to look toward you know workers and look look toward the rights of employees and so forth and in some cases place requirements or mandates on either the public employers for sure but in some cases on on the private employers as well yeah and it creates a patchwork of laws across the country which obviously is not easy for corporations or companies who do business in, you know, more than one state. So that creates some complexities. And, you know, speaking of that, minimum wage is another area where states have decided to act. The federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five per hour. That's been in place since 2009. But we know that 29 states have a minimum wage that's, that's higher than the federal minimum wage. And here in Maryland, the minimum wage was just increased to $10.10 per hour last July. Right. And that was that was um, part of, and Maryland was, it was as I recall, part of a relatively big wave. I mean, mm-hmm. you mentioned 29 states have done this. So this isn't so it's not just, just blue states. Yeah, this isn't just the, the really left-leaning or the really deep blue states who have decided to do this. Um, this is a pretty wide swath of jurisdictions, and you'd be surprised at some who are on the list who have said – you know the federal standard seven twenty five an hour is not real. I mean, as, as a matter of philosophy, what is the 
minimum wage represent? And I think you have people who have different views on what it ought to be, mm-hmm. but uh, to just have it sit for a decade and, and, and candidly through a decade of big growth. I mean, yeah. you think what the thing that's mm-hmm. happened since 2009, I mean, we were in a trough of a, of a great recession in 2009, but we've had an economic recovery of varying, you know, varying strengths ever since then. Uh, we've had equity markets have been, have been relatively robust since then. So people at the top end of the economic spectrum have been doing pretty well during this last 10 years. Meanwhile, if you're a minimum wage type worker in a lot of states, you've probably been sitting right at or around the same level, 725 for that whole 10 years. Um, as a matter of policy, that has become frustrating to more than a few states. Yeah, and we've seen this fight for 15 here in Maryland and right. in other states, and that most certainly will come back again this year here in Maryland. Yeah. And that's a, the fight for $15 an hour just as the minimum wage. Right, and and that, I think, takes the concept of minimum wage and and says – Minimum wage shouldn't necessarily be just a human level, but more uh, a quality of life. That um, I mean, living wage, I think, used to be the term of art uh, of let's make sure everybody's getting paid at a level that recognizes the real cost of living a a modern and reasonable lifestyle. So, and, and you know, whether whether fifteen dollars is a magic number, I don't know what an economist would say or what an expert would say, but it has a certain political ring, and that's really called on the fight for 15 is its own hashtag, it's its own movement, and I have no doubt we'll see legislation in Maryland this coming year that'll have fight for 15 right in the title so everybody knows what it's all about. Absolutely, no doubt there. So, Michael, another issue where states have begun to act in lieu of of congressional action is gun laws, right? And specifically, most of the time we're seeing this having to do with reciprocity, where Maryland says, we'll honor your gun laws from Virginia and vice versa. Not all states have done that, but we've seen some states doing that. This is another issue where federal inaction has led to state action. Yeah. I mean, I mean, gun laws uh, have always been a mix of federal and state, uh, but we have, we have seen on, this is the issue that that's popped up recently is what, under what circumstance should you recognize another state's gun license? So if I have a license to carry in one state or even to carry a concealed weapon in another state, should it be a duty of another state to recognize the process that the other state decided was appropriate for its residents? And so now, so now you're sort of treading into interstate issues. Um, we've seen this topic. This is another one of those topics that Congress has partially acted on, but has not completely acted on. So it hasn't become federal law to mandate that states do this. So we're seeing states actively, you know, get into this where we're going to, you know, my state is going to recognize surrounding states or all states and and their permits or their licensees and so forth. So, I mean, that's another area where in that case, I suspect the skew is these are largely red states who have acted in that direction, but they've done so out of frustration that the federal law has not changed in the way that they want to see. Right. And it's a tricky issue. I mean, if you're in Florida and you drive across the border to Georgia and you get pulled over, you have a concealed weapon, that's not legal in Georgia, but, you know, maybe in Florida it is. Mm -hmm. What does the police officer do there? Do they need to respect that right or 
take it away and you're arrested and go to jail. It's right. very tricky. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a weird burden on the citizen who's, who's followed the proper procedure right. in her state and she's carrying legally and then you end up having to do something across the states. I mean, is, is it reasonable to say you have to, you know, driving from, you know, you drive up the eastern seaboard, sure. you have to figure out all 10 different states and all their different laws when you drive through them and what do you have to do when, you know, you get into the state of Pennsylvania now that it's a different law? I mean, it's, it's kind of weird. It's, it's very interesting and uh, certainly we'll see a lot more debate about that here in Maryland and, and across the country. And Michael, an, another area that has gotten a lot of attention recently uh, and has become sort of an issue for states and local governments is elections. And just in terms of funding and you know federal regulations, we know the midterms are approaching. Congress has not passed any legislation to secure U.S. voting systems. You know, in the two years since we know there was interference in the 2016 election, we did see the Fed send some money down uh, in their appropriations bill. About $380 million went to states, but that's not nearly enough, right? And we've seen states and local governments calling on the federal government to provide some regulations and provide some funding so that we can upgrade our equipment and protect our elections. I mean, ordinarily, this has been the province of the federal government. We know, and we know that nationwide, it's generally speaking local governments. In most cases, it's counties, like in Maryland. It's county governments who actually conduct the elections themselves. But usually this is with guidance at the state level. So there's statewide policies by our state board of elections here. But the federal government has usually been the engine for to be sort of the overall shield and guidance and standards for what are we doing. And this is something that happened back in 2000 when there was a lot of attention on voting systems. And the federal government came in and said, we should have uniformity within the state. States, you decide what you want to do, but enforce it across the jurisdiction. We shouldn't have 15 different kinds of voting systems within one state, which was the case in Florida, which we heard a lot about, but also in Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. We heard, we heard a lot about Florida, but then when we, you know, you lift up the covers on Maryland and we found lots of, some places are doing punch cards, some places are doing, you know, magic markers and other places are doing flips and so forth. So, you know, we, we standardized all of that in Maryland. That's been a lengthy drama since then, but that all started with action by the consensus of the federal government. We need to change the way we're doing elections and here are the new, here are the new guidelines. Now the feds really haven't been able to come up with anything that looks like that. Right. So that money did trickle down to states. Maryland got about seven and a half million dollars to upgrade election security. But Michael, that can't happen before the midterms in November, quite frankly, because there's just not enough time. This is not an issue where you're going to take a chance and just hope that somebody can come through. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't think it would make sense. I mean, you you only get one chance to get the election right. right. This isn't the sort of thing where you get a bunch of trial runs and you get to you know perfect it later. So I mean as a practical matter do you go out you know hustle through a process and find a vendor and they say well we've got this great patch we got this great system so let's just apply it and then let her rip in november or do you say let's go through a deliberative process we'll do all the testing and all the you know pre-work that we need to do and have it ready for the next go round and we've chosen the latter path i think that's probably the sensible thing to do but i mean is it is it reasonable for someone to be frustrated and said, God, we had these threats in 2016 and it's been two full years and here we are. We still haven't really 
built the new shield around the same kind of threat that we we know was at least a potential problem. Yeah, and I mean, Maryland's not alone here and not acting on that funding. Most states have not had the time to act. And again, it's because this this has to be a deliberative process. You have to go through the motions here and make sure you're doing things the right way. Right. But the, the I mean, to be honest, I mean, the, the feds didn't exactly, you know, sprint to get this done. That's true. So, I mean, if if the concerns over the fall of 2016 had been serious enough for the federal government to act and they could have done something in the summer of 2017, we would have had plenty of time to have this stuff in place, certainly for this general election and probably for our June primaries. But because it took them until 2018 to even cut a check, uh, we're in the spot of basically, yeah, we, we missed a whole cycle. Right. So they, they really kind of put states and local governments in a bad spot. I mean, so, I mean, so this, this relationship, I mean, to sort of tie all this together, this relationship between the federal and state government, uh, you know, there are some cases where the feds just assert we are, we are in charge. This is interstate commerce or this is one of the areas where we have actively preempted local governments. We can do that. We have the supremacy clause in the constitution. So we're the bosses. We'll let you do stuff, you know, where, where it's appropriate. Um, States get to cling to the Tenth Amendment and other arguments about states' rights, and there are some places where we can't have the states' rights taken away. But we are seeing this being an area of long-term tension, whether it's federal inactivity or states who aggressively disagree with federal actions. Uh, this is this is a robust area, both in public policy and probably a full employment act for people who are constitutional lawyers and scholars to come in and opine well, what is you know what does the interstate commerce clause really mean about internet service providers out of Malaysia I don't know and nobody really knows a lot of that stuff is going to be tested between the feds in Maryland between the feds in California all the people who are regulated in these various industries and some of these areas where the states have stepped in to fill the void fascinating issue and as technology continues to evolve you'd have to think that we're going to see more and more and more of this. Yeah, I mean, it's a function of technology, also like our modern politics. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all that stuff bundled together and uh, none of the arrows seem to be ready to reverse on the the advancements of technology and the entrenchment of our political process. um, It doesn't look like there's a U-turn for either of those. So I I expect more of the same, including here in Maryland. That'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please give us a like, share it with your friends. It really helps our show get out some more listeners. With that, Kevin and Michael signing off, and we will talk to you soon.